Today I will be reading for you and also preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Now hear the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these pointers of faith in you, that we end with you. All of these things that we are about to read in this chapter in the next few Sundays points us to you, to your Son, to the work of your Holy Spirit in your people. Father, we thank you for being an example a witness, a testimony, a proclamation of your goodness and your greatness. Father, we pray that you would increase in us a faith to believe in your word, to believe in the things that you have established, and to seek you and to hold fast to you without wavering, ready for your return. Give us the strength, give us the spirit necessary. Give us this insight of your word to hold tightly to these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when people think of Hebrews, they often think of this particular chapter. They often think of this as being the highlight and the pinnacle. And it very much is in many ways, as we are coming to the end of this letter to the Hebrews, to the end of this letter um, of this particular preacher, the writer of the Hebrews wrote a sermon letter to the Christian Hebrews or the Hebrew Christians. And we are coming to the close and we are beginning to see how things all 
tie together. And this particular chapter has been known as the Hall of Faith. Now, often when we think of a hall, we, we can think of maybe in a museum with all of these different um, examples or pieces or um, historic, maybe, you know, you think of when you go to a museum, you see different things that are bits and pieces of what someone's life was like or something that they did or something that they wrote um, or gives just the stories of what they did. We think of often the Hall of Fame. When we think of sports, we see that there's a Hall of Fame um, that you can go and in music. There are different kinds of uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we think about the accomplishments of different people. And it's easy for us to also, when we read this particular chapter, we start thinking about the accomplishments of the people of God. And it's not really supposed to be the case. These are, it is called the Hall of Faith. It is the faith that these people have. But the interesting thing about this particular hall, if we were to go to this museum and we would see the different things that the people of the past did, it would all conclude ultimately into the work of Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately he who is receiving the glory. Unlike whenever there is a hall of fame where we see this tremendous accomplishment that someone did in of themselves, every single person listed And this hall of faith is ultimately pointing to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Nothing is changing here from everything that's going on in the book of Hebrews, which is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it just magnifies itself more and more as we see these particular examples of people of old highlighting again this wonderful thing. And in many sense, we see them all pointing, pointing to Jesus. And that is my point of the sermon today, if there's going to be an easy thing for you to remember, if somebody comes out of this building today and they say, what was the point of his sermon today? Well, you just answered it. The whole answer point of this sermon is that this is pointing to Jesus Christ. Here in the very beginning, in the first verse here, the first two verses, we obviously see that this is about faith. We see two things being, we see two ways of describing faith. One, that faith is the assurance, and that faith is the conviction. Now, in some other translations, I believe in the King James Version, the word conviction is actually translated as evidence. And you may have learned that. I know when I sometimes recite this particular verse, I will say the word evidence instead of conviction. And it's interesting how this particular Greek word, and I don't like to do, I'm not trying to, I think every time I try to use a Greek word, God keeps me humble because I know I'm butchering the sound of this word. But it's really rich. That's the only reason why I go to the Greek. I don't go to the Greek to say, oh, look at Charles knows so much. I mean, I just, thankfully with the computer resources that we have today, it's easy to find the Greek translation to something. But, uh, or the Greek original, and to understand it because we have so many tools. But this particular word, elenchos, is a very interesting word because it's also the same word as elenchos. And when you look up the word elenchos, you will see that it is interwoven with the Socratic method of examination. If you know what the Socratic um, method of examination is to question people instead of giving the answer. So you 
you, when you're trying to make a point or make an argument, instead of just telling the people what you think, you question and get them to answer to basically prove your point. They actually prove your point. And it's one of the most effective ways. If they can actually give the answer themselves, they're on your side of your particular argument. And so it's a very strong evidence for your case. And so it is a good word that it's both conviction is something that we know with thought, but it's also an evidence of thought. So we have both assurance, which is really also the Greek word there is the reality, that we have this assurance that what the reality is occurring, that this is a definite, that faith is our assurance in the reality, that it is the substance of the reality, that the faith itself is just a definite certainty of something occurring. And so we see here that faith in of itself, just the, the, the concept of faith, is not being the thing that's highlighted, but the things that the faith is in. We see that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is pointing to something. We see it as the things not seen. We see that faith is the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So here we have highlighted the thing that's actually potent, the thing that's actually powerful, are the things, not the faith in of itself. The, th- the faith is pointing to things. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. What do you think of? I haven't asked the question in a while. But what do you think of when you think of the word commendation or to be commended for something? What do you think of when you hear that word commendation? Okay. Give an example. So when, what, what kind of circumstances do we have where there's a commendation given? Uh, I think Google reviews can be a good example. I mean, if somebody does a business and everybody online is telling this guy has done a great job, this is what he's done, and these are the pictures. That's good. Yes. Yeah, and Knox and I, yesterday we wanted to go um, have a special lunch in celebration of him buying a truck. And uh, he was paying, so I was really looking forward to that too. And so it was good because I helped him find this truck and everything. And so what did I do? I looked up reviews, you know, and looked for the commendation. I looked for what the word you used was witness. What's another example of when someone receives a commendation? Can you think of anything like in a, in a political scene? I was kind of hoping for this. You actually gave the answer too early, and so you messed up my whole thing. But I often think when people are uh, getting a commendation, sometimes they're getting some kind of medal or some kind of honor. They're being recognized. And so, you know, if the president gives a, a medal of honor to someone, it's a commendation. Or, you know, and you often, again, it's highlighting something. It's saying that we recognize, but we're witnessing and testifying. And so the word commendation, which I think, and maybe I've been wrong here, but I think a lot of times when we think about, and it's not totally wrong in of itself, But when we think about the word commendation, that we're paralleling it with approval and acceptance in of itself. 
Now, this particular chapter is not separate from the highlighting that people were being approved or being accepted by God, and that it was, the, it was faith that was highlighting that acceptance. But this word commendation is much more tightly tied to the word witness. It's actually the Greek root of this is the word martyr. Now, when we often think of martyr, we think of someone who died, right? But what they really are is that they are a witness, that they died in the midst of being a witness testifying to the world, that they testified to such an extreme that their witness was so potent that they actually lost their life in being a witness. But all of the times that you see the word commendation or commended in this particular chapter, if you went and looked at the Greek, the Greek root's going to have the word martyr in it because it means witness. It means to testify. And we actually see that it's going back and forth that they are receiving a commendation from God. They're actually receiving a testimony to God, but they're actually being a testimony to God. And so there's this cyclical effect of that commendation. And so when it says that here the people of old received their commendation, that they received ultimately the testimony from God that they were his. It is not so much that they were receiving their approval here at this particular point. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that it was seen to be made not of things that were visible, Again, the whole point of faith and commendation, both of these are pointing to something. It's a witness. It's a testimony. And what we have here is that our faith points to God. And the commendation from from God to man is actually saying that my work is being done in them. And then it goes, it cycles cycles right back up to God. It's basically people pointing. It's it's. Us pointing to God, God pointing back to us, and just sickle over and over again. That's the whole point of this particular chapter. This whole hall of faith is to ultimately land us in those particular things, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. The people of old received their commendation, their martero, because God was witness to them that his work was being done to them. When you think about pointing, it's interesting that pointing um, is considered to be rude in a lot of different um, cultures. You know, and if you think about it, it's like, you know, if I was start pointing at you all when I preach, it's, it's kind of painful. But the whole concept of pointing is, is pretty amazing that even secular scientists say that it is only found really in humans. That other primates, even when they start pointing, they, they debate amongst themselves, this is secular scientists, whether it really means anything like it does with people. When we point, we're redirecting our attention, the, the attention to something. And the reason why it's rude in different cultures is that most of the time, what do you feel when someone points at you? <laughs> Accused, right? That it's, uh, that's the whole point is that you usually when I guess because we have a negative we enter into the thinking of it in a negative way and so certain cultures you're not allowed to do this you have to open your hand a certain way and you kind of give a direction that they, they, that this is okay but that is wrong and in some cultures you actually point by putting your index fingers with your index finger with your thumb 
And you make a direction that way. So it's, it's amazing that throughout all of these different cultures that there are all these types of rules of what is the appropriate way to point and what is the wrong way to point. And that many times it can be very offensive if you do it the wrong way, but it is very much contained to human beings. In this particular case, as we are thinking about the point of this particular chapter, the pointing is a positive thing. It's actually a glorifying thing. It is to point to the glory and the goodness of what God has done. And then when God pointing back at his people is saying that the work that he has done has been manifested in these particular people. It's a very good thing to have your finger pointed or have God's finger pointed at you in this particular case. It's not to be an offense. It's to be an encouragement. And we see that this commendation that these particular saints of God receive is an encouragement and a strengthening for us. It is to encourage us that we want to be pointed to by God. By pointing to him, we are looking forward to the reward of him pointing back to us. We have here in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we have a kind of a parallel Encouragement. Uh, many people say that when, when throughout history, when you look at this particular chapter, it's an echo of Habakkuk chapter 2, th- 2 through 4. It says, The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. Let me repeat that. It says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. But the righteous, 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 shall live by his faith. That here is this parallel that these are people who lived by faith. And that they waited upon the things of the Lord. That they were looking forward to the things that came from visions. And that were written on tablets. And they ran well with it. And that they knew that the Lord, even though it may have seemed slow in that time, that it would surely come. That these particular people were trusting the Lord in things that were yet not seen. And for us, as we read this and we think about the purpose of the preacher here, the writer of this particular book, this particular letter, this particular sermon, we are to be encouraged to also receive this, to receive this thing written in our Bibles so that we may run well, those who read it and understand it. We see that the very basis of this faith is to be in the word and promise of God. That even the universe, that when we think about God creating the earth, that it is to land us in thinking about that the world, all things, the universe was created by his word. And everything flows from that. It's one thing to think about, well, God exists and we know that he created the world. That's a good thing. That's a good start. But here, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand that even the creation itself is rooted in the power of his word, in trusting his word. It creates, it establishes, 
It testifies. It is the evidence that the word itself is so potent that it is the evidence in of itself that we can trust the evidence of his word. When we are trying to make a convincing argument about faith, we need to go to his word. We can spend a lot of time. We can go and we can dig up dirt. We can look at an eyeball. We can look at his creation. We can look at the fact that only human beings point to things. And those are all very good arguments. But nothing is more powerful than the very word of God itself. And it is the word of God that actually sustains. And it is the word of God that is being fulfilled in these promises. And so what we need to be thinking about is that this faith that's established is not some generalized faith in our own ideas about God. It's not just in the, I, okay, I believe just by looking I now have faith. That this faith is very specifically to be landing in the word and work of God. So here we have as the first example, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a preface. And this is something that I just discovered not too long ago, just in the preparation of this. You know, if you've been with us in chapter 10, we had the three lettuces, right? Not lettuces like, a, you know, like leaves, but the, the, the let us do this and the let us do that. Can anybody remember the three lettuces right off the top of your head? One is to draw near. Okay, what else? To hold fast. So we are to we are called to let us draw near to God, to be being to have a confidence that we can go near to God because of what Jesus did. So because of our confidence in the blood of Christ, we are to draw near to him. And then with the holding fast, what are we holding fast to? The confession. And then what is, what is tied to our confession? I gave a hint of that when we went into the confession of faith today. To do so without wavering. To hold fast to our confession in faithfulness because he is faithful. Again, it's always pointing to Christ in his faithfulness. And then what was the last lettuce? Well, strive, but what else? Well, well that's, that's, that is good. That's striving to the rest. You're right. But in the last, last uh, chapter, in chapter 10, it is to let us stir up one another, which I do think is a parallel to, to let us rest. We're entering into a place of dwelling with him, but we're doing it together, that we are to do it together with each other. And here in these three examples, and I've, done, I've tried to do a, as much research this week that I can, and I haven't found a, a definite confirmation of this, but I didn't find anything to deny it. In these three particular people of Abel and Enoch and in Noah, we have the three lettuces being made examples. And I'll try to prove my point here. So let's look at, let's look at Abel here. We have with Abel, and we go through, and these, are all found, these examples are found in Genesis, all the way from Genesis 4 all the way into to beyond Genesis 9. But in Genesis 4, we hear, we see the story of Abel and Cain. And this is a very popular story. We know about this. What happened to Abel? He died. How did he die? He was killed by Cain. And he was killed by Cain because God accepted his sacrifice, but he did not accept, or Abel's sacrifice, 
but did not accept Cain's sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, we see God coming to Cain after he killed Abel. And he says, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We know that Abel gave a sacrifice, an animal blood sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock. And that was the type of sacrifice that God accepted. We see here in that particular example of worship from these two brothers that that's the kind of worship, that's the only worship that would be acceptable by God, that it had to be a blood sacrifice. But what we know in that blood sacrifice that Abel, when he did that particular sacrifice, and we know throughout the rest of the scriptures, it was not the blood of that particular animal that was pleasing God, but it was the fact that Abel was pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ in that sacrifice. And that when he was killed, that he was actually the first true martyr of the faith, the first testifier of the blood of Christ, even though he did not know the name of Jesus Christ, and that his death became a great witness. In Jude, we see, excuse me, not Jude, in Hebrews 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 24, we see now that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And what that is highlighting for us is that the blood of Abel was, a, again, a witness and testimony of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we get to chapter 12 in Hebrews, we understand now clearly that when this happened, that this was, again, pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ. So if we go back to the let us's, when it says for us to let us draw near, we know that the only way that we can draw near to God is by what? The blood of Jesus Christ. It is that sacrifice that allows us to draw near. Abel is being a testimony. He is being one of the first to give testimony and witness to how we are going to be accepted by God. And we are being encouraged now that we know the ultimate sacrifice. We know that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We know that his blood is the only thing that pleases God. That we too are to look at Abel as an example and to follow him by pointing also to the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we have Enoch. Now Enoch is a very interesting Character. Most of us, we are just amazed. He's a mysterious character. What is, why is Enoch a mysterious character? What's really unique about Enoch? Other than his name. He gets taken up by God. He gets taken up by God. I mean, how many of us kind of wish that's the way we could go? That we could, that we could exit <laughs> our life without having to experience that kind of death. That it's, it's a mysterious, like we don't even really understand, even theologians, like, well, how can he, somehow or another, doesn't he have to die in some way? And we're left with this perplexing thing. What was it, what did it mean? We see this with Elijah, but with, other than Elijah, 
Enoch is the only one that we see that had this really miraculous and extraordinary exit to his life. But what it's highlighting here, we know that even though that's one of the few things we know, that it's highlighting something amazing. We know that with Abel, we see this death. We see that there's this blood. We see that sin has brought forth death. But there's also the necessity of a blood sacrifice. We see so much being highlighted about death and sacrifice and ultimately the cross when we think about Abel. But with Enoch, we see this amazing revelation of this eternalness, this idea of living forever, this resurrected element. And with Enoch, we see only one other thing about him that we, well, there's two other things that we know about him. One is that he walked with God. Now, when we think about walking with God, we first see that where Adam and Eve, before the sin and before the fall, they were able to walk with God. There was this relationship. Not only was there this acceptance, but there is this life with God and walking with God. And we see that it is how Enoch walked with God that was a testimony to the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. That there was this this ability to be at a peaceful life with God. Let's read that. In verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up, that he should not see death, and that he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as a having pleased God. And then we are given a highlighter right here in verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We see that this faith of Enoch is tied to his walking and trusting God and seeking God to please him. I know a lot of times when I am talking to people and I am wanting to know whether or not they're a Christian, I, it's difficult in this day and age. Because if you say, are you, is your, are you a Christian or is this, this relative of yours or this friend or whoever is the subject matter at the hand, are they a Christian? We, without having to go through all the definitions and qualifications, we know that that's a, kind of an incomplete question, that it might not actually give us a very good answer. That some, most people, unless they're of a, of a different religion, they'll say, oh yeah, he's a Christian, he's a good person. You know, they'll connect being a Christian to whether or not they're the opposite of a mass murderer or something. You know, it's like as long as they're a generally good citizen, then they're a good Christian person. But then sometimes I'll say, well, hey, is, is, are, are you a believer? You know, and, then, and that's limiting also because we know that people can believe in God. But it's the question of what God that they believe and what about God do they believe? And here we see that it is those who need to believe in God, the true God, that he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. That there's this active life walking with God. It's not just the confession of believing in Yahweh, believing in Jesus Christ, believing that the Holy Spirit is active and alive, but it is seeking God. It's walking with God. It is holding fast your confession without wavering. It is to have that kind of life. The only other thing that we know about Enoch is that he was a prophet for the Lord as well. 
that he actually proclaimed the truth and that he called people to repentance. We see in Jude chapter 1, which I don't know where all this information comes from. I haven't done the, the study of it. There must be more information out there about Enoch than what we have portrayed in the scriptures. But other than that, we have very little about Enoch except what we have here in Jude. And it, it may be some of the, 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 the beefier of all of the information that we have. In Jude chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, not commendation, but condemnation, ungodly people who pervert pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We have Jude here explaining about false teachers, about wolves in sheep's clothing amongst God's people who have actually taken the concept of God's grace or even the benefit of God's grace and they have perverted it into this religion of sensuality to such a point that it is denying Jesus Christ himself. So because of how they're living their life and how they have perverted the idea of grace, that now they're actually going against God, going against Jesus and denying Jesus as they uplift this concept of grace. Now we know this is a very common thing in the church today, that people want to talk about grace a lot. But they want to talk about grace without the understanding of what the grace has done to transform us to be followers of God, to seek after God. And if we are seeking after God and we have been freed from sin, we are now free to obey and to live in a way that brings glory to God. And so Jude is making this admonition and this warning about those who would come in to into the church and to preach a grace that is absent the transformation of God and therefore it is absence the preaching of Jesus Christ well then he comes into verses 14 through 16 he says now I want to remind you although you only fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt I love that. It's it's saying that Jesus is the one who ultimately saved the people out of Egypt. That even though Moses was the representative, that it was Jesus that brought salvation to the Israelites in freeing them from the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It was also about these that Enoch... The seventh from Adam, and the reason why he says the seventh from Adam is there's another Enoch in there as well. This is talking about the one that is the one who walked with the Lord, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then Jude comes in and says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. What we see here is this small insight to the ministry of Enoch in preaching repentance to people. In preaching ultimately to God's people for being those who are grumblers, malcontents, 
Those who are really seeking after their own selfish desires, who are arrogant, loud-mouthed boasters, and who also show favoritism for their own selfish gain. So when we see this parallel to the thing that Enoch was given commendation for, we understand that the life and testimony of Enoch was one who held fast the confession of his faith without wavering. That he trusted in God. And he trusted in the salvation that came ultimately from Jesus. Here we have Jude telling us, that those people of old were ultimately trusting in Jesus, that the Israelites, when they were freed from Egypt, that it was because of Jesus. And so because of that transformation that has occurred to God's people, because of that salvation that has occurred to God's people, because they are now able to draw near with confidence to God because of the sacrifice of the blood, they should be living as those who are godly and not ungodly. So that's the second let us's. But then we see in verse 7 to close. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If you remember that third let us, that we are called to draw near and to hold fast our confession with the household of God. In chapter 10, it says, because we have confidence in the blood and we have a high priest, we also have this identity of the household of God. I feel pretty confident that what we see here is the preacher to the Hebrews is echoing his three same points. The three same points that he's been doing throughout the book of Hebrews. When we think about drawing near to strive to enter into his rest. When we think about this holding fast our confession. And then when we think about coming together corporately as his people. We see here Noah who was warned of God's coming judgment upon the world. If you remember at the end of chapter 10, it's highlighting once again that Jesus is returning and that the Hebrew Christians here, that they are anticipating Jesus's return. They are anticipating that Jesus is going to come back in judgment just like he promised and they have not yet seen that happen and they are being encouraged to hold fast, to go ahead and draw near to God, but to hold fast their confession of faith but to come and assemble together as those who have the refuge of God and have this wonderful identity of the household of God. Noah is a forefather in this kind of faith, holding fast, having to listen to God say that he's going to come and bring judgment by flooding the world when it had not yet rained. (laughs) Things that were truly unseen. You know, this past week, the Burning Man concert festival thing out west occurred. And it's an interesting thing. It's, it's basically a hedonistic worship service. And they have an effigy of a man that they burn. That's why they call it the Burning Man. And there were thousands of people who came. And they received that weekend 
Two months of rain in two days. In a desert, when that happens, it's not a good thing. (laughs) And they were stuck in mud. And I wonder how many people that were there may have gone to Sunday school sometime in their life, and they were thinking, hey, is this the end? (laughs) Because the people who were familiar with the desert have never seen rain like that ever happen before. And were they hoping that maybe, well, at least God said he would never destroy the whole earth again. By a flood, that he would never bring judgment upon the earth like he did at that time. Here we have a situation where Noah is having to wait, just like what we see there in Habakkuk, is having to hold on and to hold tightly the promises in the word of God that he is going to come back. But he is also given inside of that warning of God's judgment. God gave Noah the provision of refuge for his household. And when that household came together and Noah preached to the world what was going to happen and he was rejected by all, that only his household would end up being the one to save, his household did two things. One, their testimony and their faith in God condemned the world because they had heard the truth that they needed to repent. But they also became the heirs of promise. Noah in his household is the example for us today that Jesus now is the ultimate Noah. He has created the ark by the promise of the ark of the covenant, which is ultimately his church. And we are gathered together to hold fast our confession, drawing near to God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and to proclaim and praise his goodness in his return. And to call out to the world, like Noah, that they need to repent. For final judgment is coming. That is ultimately our job. Now is to be like Noah together, but to look forward to the fact that we are heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. God commended Noah, pointed back to Noah and to his household and said, these are going to be my people that will receive my grace and my refuge. And so the Christian Hebrews here and us today, as we read this same sermon, are left with this place that we need to, one, fear God if we are not those who hold to that refuge in Jesus Christ, our ultimate Noah. We are to be those who are to fear the return if we are not protected by this ark of the covenant, which is the body of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, the calling in the kingdom of God. But we are also to be encouraged that as we are in this time of having to go against the flow of our culture, to go against what people are proclaiming as a hope of life when it's nothing but death. We are to stand fast together, trusting that we are those who who are heirs of the promise. This is to be a warning to those who are outside of the ark, 
but it is to be an encouragement to you who trust in Jesus Christ and who hold tightly. So hold fast and draw near. Jesus is supreme, and he is reigning and interceding for us today. Let us pray.